Chapter One of Anna of the Five Towns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Anna of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter One The Kindling of Love. The yard was all silent and empty under the burning afternoon heat, which had made its asphalt springy like turf, when suddenly the children threw themselves out of the great doors at either end of the Sunday school. Boys from the right, girls from the left, and two howling, impetuous streams that widened, eddied, intermingled, and formed backwaters until the whole quadrangle was full of clamor and movement. Many of the scholars carried prize-books bound in vivid tents, and proudly exhibited these volumes to their companions and to the teachers, who, tall, languid, and condescending, soon began to appear amid the restless throng. Near the left-hand door, a little girl of twelve years, dressed in a cream-colored frock, with a wide and heavy straw hat, stood quietly kicking her foal-like legs against the wall. She was one of those who had won a prize, and once or twice she took the treasure from under her arm to glance at its frontispiece with a vague smile of satisfaction. For a time her bright eyes were fixed expectantly on the doorway. Then they would wander, and she started to count the windows of the various connectional buildings, which on three sides enclosed the yard chapel, school, lecture hall, and chapel keeper's house. Most of the children had already squeezed through the narrow iron gate into the street beyond, where a steam-car was rumbling and clattering up Duck Bank, attended by its immense shadow. The teachers remained a little behind, gradually dropping the pedagogic pose, and happy in the virtuous sensation of duty accomplished, they forgot the frets and fatigues of the day and grew amiably vivacious among themselves. With an instinctive mutual complacency, the two sexes mixed again after separation. Greetings and pleasantries were exchanged, and intimate conversations begun. And then, dividing into small familiar groups, the young men and women slowly followed their pupils out of the gate. The chapel-keeper, who always had an injured expression, left the white step of his residence, and, walking with official dignity across the yard, drew down the side windows of the chapel one after another. As he approached the little solitary girl in his course, he gave her a reluctant, acid recognition. Then he returned to his hearth. Agnes was alone. "'Well, young lady?' She looked round with a jump, and blushed, smiling and screwing up her little shoulders when she recognized the two men who were coming towards her from the door of the lecture hall. The one who had called out was Henry Miners, morning superintendent of the Sunday school and conductor of the men's Bible class held in the lecture hall on Sunday afternoons. The other was William Price, usually styled Willie Price, 
secretary of the same Bible class, and son of Titus Price, the afternoon superintendent. "'I'm sure you don't deserve that prize. Let me see if it isn't too good for you,' Miner smiled playfully down upon Agnes Tellwright as he idly turned the leaves of the book which she handed to him. "'Now, do you deserve it? Tell me honestly.' She scrutinized those sparkling and vehement black eyes with the fearless calm of infancy. "'Yes, I do,' she answered in her high, thin voice, having at length decided within herself that Mr. Miners was joking. "'Then I suppose you must have it,' he admitted, with a fine air of giving way. As Agnes took the volume from him, she thought how perfect a man Mr. Miners was. His eyes— so kind and sincere, and that mysterious, delicious, inexpressible something which dwelt behind his eyes. These constituted an ideal for her. Willie Price stood somewhat apart, grinning, and pulling a thin, honey-colored mustache. He was at that uncouth, disjointed age, twenty-one, and nine years younger than Henry Miners. Despite a continual effort, after ease of manner, he was often sheepish and self-conscious, even as now, when he could discover no reason for such a condition of mind. But Agnes liked him, too. His simple, pale blue eyes had a wistfulness which made her feel towards him as she felt towards her doll when she happened to find it lying neglected on the floor. "'Your big sister isn't out of school yet?' Miners remarked. Agnes shook her head. "'I've been waiting ever so long,' she said plaintively. At that moment, a grey-haired woman, with a benevolent but rather pinched face, emerged with much briskness from the girl's door. This was Mrs. Sutton, a distant relative of Miner's. His mother had been her second cousin. The men raised their hats. I've just been down to make sure of some of you slippery folks for the sewing meeting, she said, shaking hands with Miners, and including both him and Willie Price in an embracing maternal smile. She was short-sighted, and did not perceive Agnes, who had fallen back. Had a good class this afternoon, Henry? Mrs. Sutton's breathing was short and quick. Oh, yes, he said, very good indeed. You're doing grand work. We had over seventy present, he added. Eh, she said. I make nothing of numbers, Henry. I meant a good class. Doesn't it say where two or three are gathered together? But I must be getting on. The horse will be restless. I've got to go up to Hillport before tea. Mrs. Clayton Vernon is ill. Scarcely having stopped in her active course, Mrs. Sutton drew the men along with her down the yard, she and Miners, in rapid talk. Willie Price fell a little to the rear, his big hands halfway into his pockets, and his eyes diffidently roving. It appeared as though he could not find courage to take a share in the conversation, yet was anxious to convince himself of his right to do so. Miners helped Mrs. Sutton into her carriage, which had been drawn up outside the gate of the schoolyard. Only two families of the Bursley Wesleyan Methodists kept a carriage, the Suttons 
and the Clayton Vernons. The latter, boasting lineage and a large house in the aristocratic suburb of Hillport, gave to the society monetary aid and a gracious condescension. But though indubitably above the operation of any unwritten sumptuary law, even the Clayton Vernons ventured only in wet weather to bring their carriage to chapel. Yet Mrs. Sutton, who was a plain woman, might with impunity use her equipage on Sundays. This license, granted by connectional opinion, was due to the fact that she so obviously regarded her carriage not as a carriage, but as a contrivance on four wheels for enabling an infirm creature to move rapidly from place to place. When she got into it, she had exactly the air of a doctor on his rounds. Mrs. Sutton's bodily frame had long ago proved inadequate to the ceaseless demands of a spirit indefatigably altruistic, and her continuance in activity was a notable illustration of the dominion of mind over matter. Her husband, a potter's valuer and commission agent, made money with facility in that lucrative vocation, and his wife's charities were famous, notwithstanding her attempts to hide them. Neither husband or wife had allowed riches to put a factitious gloss upon their primal simplicity. They were as they were, save that Mr. Sutton had joined the Five Towns Field Club and acquired some of the habits of an archaeologist. The influence of wealth on manners was to be observed only in their daughter Beatrice, who, while favoring her mother, dressed at considerable expense, and at intervals gave much time to the arts of music and painting. Agnes watched the carriage drive away, and then turned to look up the stairs within the school doorway. She sighed, scowled, and sighed again, murmured something to herself, and finally began to read her book. Not come out yet? Miners was at her side once more, alone this time. No, not yet, said Agnes, wearied. Yes, here she is. Anna, what ages you've been! Anna Tellwright stood motionless for a second in the shadow of the doorway. She was tall, but not unusually so, and sturdily built up. Her figure, though the bust was a little flat, had the lenient curves of absolute maturity. Anna had been a woman since seventeen, and she was now on the eve of her twenty-first birthday. She wore a plain, home-made light frock, checked with brown and edged with brown velvet, thin cotton gloves of cream color, and a broad straw hat like her sister's. Her grave face, owing to the prominence of the cheekbones and the width of the jaw, had a slight angularity. The lips were thin, the brown eyes rather large, the eyebrows level, the nose fine and delicate. The ears could scarcely be seen, for the dark brown hair, which was brushed diagonally across the temples, leaving of the forehead only a pale triangle. It seemed a face for the cloister, austere in contour, fervent in expression, the severity of it mollified by that resigned and spiritual melancholy peculiar to women who, through the error of destiny, have been born into a wrong environment. 
As if charmed forward by Miner's compelling eyes, Anna stepped into the sunlight, at the same time putting up her parasol. How calm and stately she is, he thought, as she gave him her cool hand and murmured a reply to his salutation. But even his aquiline gaze could not surprise the secrets of that concealing breast. This was one of the three great tumultuous moments of her life she realized for the first time that she was loved. "'You are late this afternoon, Miss Tellwright,' Miners began, with the easy inflections of a man well accustomed to prominence in the society of women. Little Agnes seized Anna's left arm, silently holding up the prize, and Anna nodded appreciation. "'Yes,' she said as they walked across the yard. "'One of my girls has been doing wrong.' She stole a Bible from another girl, so of course I had to mention it to the superintendent. Mr. Price gave her a long lecture, and now she is waiting upstairs till he is ready to go with her to her home and talk to her parents. He says she must be dismissed. Dismissed? Anna's look flashed a grateful response to him. By the least possible emphasis, he had expressed a complete disagreement with his senior colleague, which etiquette forbade him to utter in words. "'I think it's a very great pity,' Anna said firmly. "'I rather like the girl,' she ventured in haste. "'You might speak to Mr. Price about it.' "'If he mentions it to me.' "'Yes, I meant that. Mr. Price said if it had been anything else but a Bible.' Um, he murmured very low, but she caught the significance of his intonation. They did not glance at each other. It was unnecessary. Anna felt that comfortable ease of spirit which springs from the recognition of another spirit capable of understanding without explanations or of sympathizing without a phrase. Under that calm mask, a strange and sweet satisfaction thrilled through her as her precious instinct of common sense, rarest of good qualities, and pining always for fellowship, found a companion in his own. She had dreaded the overtures which, for a fortnight past, she had foreseen were inevitably to come from miners. He was a stranger, whom she merely respected. Now, in a sudden disclosure, she knew him, and liked him. The dire apprehension of those formal advances which she had watched other men make to other women faded away. It was at once a release and a reassurance. They were passing through the gate, Agnes skipping round her sister's skirts, when Willie Price reappeared from the direction of the chapel. "'Forgotten something?' Miners inquired of him blandly. Y yes he stammered, clumsily raising his hat to Anna. She thought of him exactly as Agnes had done. He hesitated for a fraction of time, and then he went up to the yard towards the lecture hall. "'Agnes has been showing me her prize,' said Miners, as the three stood together outside the gate. I asked her if she thinks she really deserves it, and she says she does. What do you think, Miss Big Sister?' Anna gave the little girl an affectionate smile of comprehension. "'What is it called, dear?' 
Janie's Sacrifice or the Spool of Cotton and Other Stories for Children, Agnes read out in a monotone. Then she clutched Anna's elbow and aimed a whisper at her ear. Very well, dear, Anna answered aloud, but we must be back by a quarter past four. And turning to Miners, Agnes wants to go up to the park to hear the band play. I'm going up there, too, he said. Come along, Agnes. Take my arm and show me the way. Shyly, Agnes left her sister's side and put a pink finger into Miner's hand. More road, which climbs over the ridge to the mining village of Moorthorne and passes the new park on its way, was crowded with people going up to criticize and enjoy this latest outcome of municipal enterprise in Bursley. Sedate elders of the borough, who smiled grimly to see one another on Sunday afternoon in that undignified, idly curious throng, white-skinned potters and miners with a swarthy pallor of subterranean toil, untidy Sabbath loafers whom neither church nor chapel could entice, and the primly clad respectable, who had not only clothes, but a separate deportment for the seventh day, housewives, whose pale faces, as of prisoners free only for a while, showed a naive and timorous pleasure in the unusual diversion. Young women, made glorious by richly colored stuffs, and carrying themselves with the defiant independence of good wages, earned in warehouse or painting shop. Youths oppressed by stiff new clothes bought at Whitsuntide, in which the bright necktie and the nosegay revealed a thousand secret aspirations. Young children running and yelling with the marvelous energy of their years. Here and there a small, well-dressed group, whose studious repudiation of the crowd betrayed a conscious eminence of rank. Louts, drunkards, idiots, beggars, waifs, outcasts, and every oddity of the town all were more or less under the influence of a new excitement, and all, with the same face of pleased expectancy, looked towards the spot where, halfway up the hill, a denser mass of sightseers indicated the grand entrance to the park. "'What stacks of folks!' Agnes exclaimed. "'It's like going to a football match!' "'Do you go to football matches, Agnes?' Miners asked. The child gave a giggle. Anna was relieved when these two began to chatter. She had at once, by a firm natural impulse, subdued the agitation which seized her when she found Miners waiting with such an obvious intention at the school door. She had conversed with him in tones of quiet ease. His attitude had even enabled her in a few moments to establish a pleasant familiarity with him. Nevertheless, as they joined the stream of people in Moore Road, she longed to be at home in her kitchen, in order to examine herself and the new situation thus created by miners. And yet, also, she was glad that she must remain at his side. But it was fluttered joy that his presence gave her, too strange for immediate appreciation. As her eye, without directly looking at him, embraced the suave and admirable male creature within its field of vision, she became aware that he was quite inscrutable to her. What were his inmost thoughts, his ideals, the histories of his heart? 
Surely it was impossible that she should ever know these secrets. He and she, they were utterly foreign to each other. So the primary dissonances of sex vibrated within her, and her own feelings puzzled her. Still, there was an instant pleasure, delightful, if disturbing and inexplicable. And also there was a sensation of triumph, which, though she tried to scorn it, she could not banish. That a man and a woman should saunter together on that road was nothing, but the circumstance acquired tremendous importance when the man happened to be Henry Miners, and the woman Anna Tellwright. Miners, handsome, dark, accomplished, exemplary, and prosperous, had walked for ten years, circumspect and unscathed, amid the glances of a whole legion of maids. As for Anna, the peculiarity of her position had always marked her for special attention. Ever since her father settled in Bursley, she had felt herself to be the object of an interest in which awe and pity were equally mingled. She guessed that the fact of her going to the park with miners that afternoon would pass swiftly from mouth to mouth like the rumor of a decisive event. She had no friends. Her innate reserve had been misinterpreted, and she was not popular among the Wesleyan community. Many people would say, and more would think, that it was her money which was drawing miners from the narrow path of his celibate discretion. She could imagine all the innuendos, the expressive nods, the pursing of lips, the lifting of shoulders and of eyebrows. Money'll do out. That was the proverb, but she cared not. She had the just and unshakable self-esteem which is fundamental in all strong and righteous natures, and she knew beyond the possibility of doubt that, though miners might have no incurable aversion to a fortune, she herself, the spirit and body of her, had been the sole awakener of his desire. By a common instinct, miners and Anna made little Agnes the center of attraction. Miners continued to tease her, and Agnes, growing courageous, began to retort. She was now walking between them, and the other two smiled to each other at the child's sayings over her head, interchanging thus messages too subtle and delicate for the coarse medium of words. As they approached the park, the bandstand came into sight over the railway cutting, and they could hear the music of the Emperor's Hymn. The crude, brazen sounds were tempered in their passage through the warm, still air, and fell gently on the ear in soft waves, quickening every heart to unaccustomed emotions. Children leaped forward, and old people unconsciously assumed a lightsome vigor. The park rose in terraces from the railway station to a street of small villas almost on the ridge of the hill. From its gilded gates to its smallest geranium slips it was brand new, and most of it was red. The keeper's house, the bandstand, the kiosks, the balustrades, the shelters, all these assailed the eye with a uniform redness of brick and tile which nullified the pallid greens of the turf and the frail trees. The immense crowd, in order to circulate, moved along in tight processions, 
inspecting one after another the various features of which they had read full descriptions in the staffordshire signal waterfall grotto lake swans boat seats faience statues and scanning with interest the names of the donors so clearly inscribed on such objects of art and craft as from diverse motives had been presented to the town by its citizens miners as he maneuvered away for the two girls through the main avenue up to the topmost terrace gravely judged each thing upon its merits approving this condemning that in deciding that all under the circumstances the park made a very creditable appearance, he only reflected the best local opinion. The town was proud of its achievement, and it had the right to be, for, though this narrow pleasance was in itself unlovely, it symbolized the first faint renaissance of the longing for beauty in a district long given up to unredeemed ugliness. At length, miners having encountered many acquaintances, they got past the bandstand and stood on the highest terrace, which was almost deserted. Beneath them, in front, stretched a maze of roofs, dominated by the gold angel of the town hall spire. Bursley, the ancient home of the potter, has an antiquity of a thousand years. It lies towards the north end of an extensive valley, which must have been one of the fairest spots in Alfred's England, but which is now defaced by the activities of a quarter of a million people. Five contiguous towns, Turnhill, Bursley, Hanbridge, Knipe, and Longshaw, united by a single winding thoroughfare some eight miles in length, have inundated the valley like a succession of great lakes. Of these five, Bursley is the mother, but Hanbridge is the largest. They are mean and forbidding of aspect, somber, hard-featured, uncouth, and the vaporous poison of their ovens and chimneys has soiled and shriveled the surrounding country till there is no village lane within a league but what offers a gaunt and ludicrous travesty of rural charms. Nothing could be more prosaic than the huddled red-brown streets nothing more seemingly remote from romance yet be it said that romance is even here the romance which for those who have an eye to perceive it ever dwells amid the seats of industrial manufacture softening the coarseness transfiguring the squalor of these mighty alchemic operations look down into the valley from this terrace height where love is kindling embrace the whole smoke-girt amphitheatre in a glance, and it may be that you will suddenly comprehend the secret and superb significance of the vast doing which goes forward below. Because they seldom think, the townsmen take shame when indicted for having disfigured half a county in order to live. They have not understood that this disfigurement is merely an episode in the unending warfare of man and nature, and calls for no contrition. Here, indeed, is nature repaid for some of her notorious cruelties. She imperiously bids man sustain and reproduce himself, and this is one of the places wherein the very act of obedience he wounds and maltreats her. Out 
beyond the municipal confines where the subsidiary industries of coal and iron prosper amid a wreck of verdure the struggle is grim appalling heroic so ruthless in his havoc of her so indomitable her ceaseless recuperation on the one side is a resting from nature's own bowels of the means to waste her on the other an undismayed enduring fortitude the grass grows though it is not green it grows in the very heart of the valley hedged about with furnaces a farm still stands and at harvest time the sooty sheaves are gathered in the band stopped playing a whole population was idle in the park and it seemed in the fierce calm of the sunlight that of all the strenuous weekday vitality of the district only a murmurous hush remained but everywhere on the horizon and nearer furnaces cast their heavy smoke across the borders of the sky the doing was never suspended mr minus said agnes still holding his hand when they had been silent a moment when did these furnaces go out they don't go out he answered unless there is a strike it costs hundreds and hundreds of pounds to light them again does it she said vaguely father says it's smoke that stops my gillyflowers from growing miners turned to anna your father seems the picture of health i saw him out this morning at a quarter to seven as brisk as a boy what a constitution yes anna replied he is always up at six but you aren't i suppose yes i too and me too agnes interjected and how does bursley compare with hainbridge miners continued anna paused before replying i like it better she said at first last year i thought i shouldn't by the way your father used to preach in hanbridge circuit that was years ago she said quickly but why won't he preach here i dare say you know that we are rather short of local preachers good ones that is i can't say why father doesn't preach now anna flushed as she spoke you had better ask him that well i will do he laughed i am coming to see him soon perhaps one night this week Anna looked at Henry Miners as he uttered the astonishing words. The Tellwrights had been in Bursley a year, but no visitor had crossed their doorsteps except the minister once, and such poor defaulters as came, full of excuse and obsequious conciliation, to pay rent overdue. "'Business, I suppose?' she said, and prayed that he might not be intending to make a mere call of ceremony." yes business he answered lightly but you will be in i am always in she said she wondered what the business could be and felt relieved to know that his visit would have at least some assigned pretext but already her heart beat with apprehensive perturbation at the thought of his presence in their household see said agnes whose eyes were everywhere there's miss sutton both miners and Anna looked sharply round. Beatrice Sutton was coming towards them, 
along the terrace, stylishly clad in a dress of pink muslin with harmonious hat, gloves, and sunshade, she made an agreeable and rather effective picture, despite her plain round face and stoutish figure. She had the air of being a leader. Grafted on to the original simple honesty of her eyes, there was the unconsciously acquired arrogance of one who had always been accustomed to deference. Socially, Beatrice had no peer among the young women who were active in the Wesleyan Sunday School. Beatrice had been used to teach in the afternoon school, but she had recently advanced her labors from the afternoon to the morning, in response to a hint that, if she did so, the force of her influence and example might lessen the chronic dearth of morning teachers. "'Good afternoon, Miss Talwright,' Beatrice said as she came up. "'So you have come to look at the park?' "'Yes,' said Anna, and then stopped awkwardly. In the tone of each there was an obscure constraint, and something in Miner's smile of salute to Beatrice showed that he too shared it. "'Seen you before,' Beatrice said to him familiarly, without taking his hand. Then she bent down and kissed Agnes. "'What are you doing here, mademoiselle?' Miner's asked her. "'Father's just down below, near the lake.' He caught sight of you, and sent me up to say that you were to be sure to come in to supper tonight. You will, won't you? Yes, thanks. I had meant to. Anna knew that they were related, and also that Miners was constantly at the Sutton's house, but the close intimacy between these two came nevertheless like a shock to her. She could not conquer a certain resentment of it, however absurd such a feeling might seem to her intelligence and this attitude extended not only to the intimacy, but to Beatrice's handsome clothes and facile urbanity, which by contrast emphasized her own poor little frock and tongue-tied manner. The mere existence of Beatrice, so near to Miner's, was like an affront to her. Yet, at heart, and even while admiring this shining daughter of success, she was conscious within herself of a fundamental superiority. The soul of her condescended to the soul of the other one. They began to discuss the park. "'Papa says it will send up the value of that land over there enormously,' said Beatrice, pointing with her ribbon sunshade to some building plots which lay to the north, high up the hill. "'Mr. Tellwright owns most of that, doesn't he?' she added to Anna. "'I dare say he does.' said Anna. It was torture to her to refer to her father's possessions. Of course, it will be covered with streets in a few months. Will he build himself, or will he sell it? I haven't the least idea, Anna answered, with an effort after gaiety of tone, and then turned aside to look at the crowd. There, close against the bandstand, stood her father, a short, stout, ruddy, middle-aged man in a shabby brown suit. He recognized her, stared fixedly, and nodded with his grotesque and ambiguous grin. Then he sidled off towards the entrance of the park. None of the others had seen him. "'Agnes, dear,' she said abruptly, "'we must go now, or we shall be late for tea.' As the two women said good-bye, 
their eyes met, and in the brief second of that encounter each tried to wring from the other the true answer to a question which lay unuttered in her heart. Then, having bidden adieu to miners, whose parting glance sang its own song to her, Anna took Agnes by the hand, and left him and Beatrice together. End of chapter 1 The Kindling of Love